Welcome to another edition of Return to the Word Radio with Bible teacher Mark Fontecchio. Advancing the message of God's amazing grace through the teaching of God's Word. And now with today's message, here is our teacher. Hello and welcome back to another edition of Return to the Word. Today we are back in our study of 1 Thessalonians. Now as we come to 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul uses the favorite expression of men who preach where the apostle Paul said, finally, then. While we might be thinking that Paul is wrapping up his message, if this was a sermon, it would be noon hour on Sunday at Thessalonica, and Paul was just getting started. So here it comes, like rapid fire, Paul hits one application after another for those in Christ. Let's begin by breaking down the first two verses. Verses one and two teach, finally then, brethren, we urge and exhort in the Lord Jesus, that you should abound more and more just as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God. For you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. Think back to what Paul had just said to them in the verses right before this. Paul and his group had been praying for the holiness of the church at Thessalonica. Paul now instructs them to live it out. And then we have the words, we urge and exhort. This was something that Paul clearly thought was important to their faith. But notice the next part of the wording in verse 1, that you should abound more and more. The idea is that we must never quit. There is no stopping in the pursuit of holiness in this life. This should hit right to the heart of the church of our day because we know the commandments of Christ. We know the teachings of the Word of God to live holy, to live for the glory of the Lord. But we fall into a rut and we grow complacent. And the message from Paul is to continue to push on in the faith, continue to grow not just in knowledge, but in purity and holiness. This teaching was not new to the church. This was something which had been taught to them by Paul and Silas. The teaching was about their walk in Christ. The teaching was how to live in a manner which was pleasing to God. This sums up everything that Paul was about to tell them. It covers the entire Christian life. Notice again the last part of verse 1. How you ought to walk and to please God. This was their duty. This is our duty. This is the obligation we have because of the relationship we have with the Lord Jesus Christ. This is how we should live. We live by faith, by trust, by dependence upon the Lord. You know, if you set to go out for a walk, you need to know what direction you're headed. And so it is in our lives. We need directions. Christians should not walk or live like the unsaved. We are to walk worthy of our calling from God. The goal of our lives should be to please God. We live as men and women, not living for ourselves, but for the Lord. It should be our goal to learn what brings the most glory and honor to Jesus Christ. If we learn to live a life that honors God, we will be prepared for the great day when the Lord Jesus Christ returns for his bride. Notice with verse 2, Paul was not rebuking this church. He was reminding them of what they had been taught. For you know, he tells them. Paul and Silas had not left the church ignorant of what Christ expected of them. They knew the commandments. They knew the instructions they had been given in the Christian life. And Paul also reminded them that the instructions he had left them were not just the teachings of men, but these were instructions which had come through the Lord Jesus Christ. The word spoken, 
the words written were weighted with the authority of God himself. And what this means for us is that the expectation from the Lord is obedience. The believers in Christ at Thessalonica knew this from the very start. Living in a way that pleases God, it is the obligation for believers in Christ. Living to please God, living to serve God, is the entire point of life. He's our creator, he's our savior, and he has every right to tell us how to live. Living how Christ wants us to live is something that should never grow old. Take a look at that first part of verse 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Reading passages like this should get our interest because this is part of God's plan for our lives. It is staggering the number of Christians who get confused about the will of God. Books, conferences, TV programs all focus on the will of God in our lives. What job should I take? What college should I go to? Where should I live? The real issue, the real desire is that we want God to make our choices for us. But I would suggest to you that if you want to know the will of God, read his word. There doesn't need to be any guesswork. The only choice to make is whether we will obey when we know what God desires. Obey Christ. Obey his word. Use the principles found in the word of God for the foundation of your decisions. And the rest will fall into place as he directs your path. One part of God's will for our lives is that we continue to set ourselves apart for God. And quite honestly, it would be refreshing if more Christians were focused on this. If you connect the flow of thought in this text, the obligation we are under to live holy is because this is the will of God for us. Go back to the basics. Remind yourself of the very definition of the word sanctification. We're talking about being set apart or dedicated to God on the basis of the atoning work of Christ. Remind yourself that sanctification here is the process of being made holy, becoming more and more in character and conduct, that which God desires us to be. Because God himself is holy, because God himself is separated from sin, the process of sanctification expresses itself in purity of life. The second part of verse 3 tells us that you should abstain from sexual immorality. Notice the force of this instruction. You should abstain. This wasn't something that was up for debate. The Greek word that Paul uses is pornea. So in other words, we are talking of any and every form of sexual practice that is outside the will of God. We're talking of adultery, homosexuality, incest, fornication, single men and women giving into the temptation of having sex outside of God's perfect plan of a man and a woman coming together in marriage. All of this was a huge problem in the early church. In Greece, home and family life were near to being extinct. The idea of being faithful to your spouse was almost at the point of being unheard of. The Greek gods which the people worshipped were simply the products of the imagination of men. The worship of these so-called gods came from demons and came from the foolish and darkened hearts of men. These gods were half-human and half-god. These so-called gods were as immoral as the men who created them, and so these false gods taught that men and women should satisfy their lusts. It was taught in the temples that if a man would engage in relations with a temple prostitute, that the man was actually communing with the god that the prostitute represented. They didn't look down at sexual immorality in that culture. Their religions condoned it. 
Listen, we know that Thessalonica was a city that had a lot of perverse things going on. Not only was adultery and homosexuality and fornication common, but so was pedophilia and so were transvestites. The moral climate in the Roman Empire itself was not healthy. Immorality throughout the empire was a way of life. And because of slaves, men and women now had the time to satisfy their earthly desires. Fornication was common almost throughout the entire empire. Fornication was so common that it was even defended as a necessity of nature, like eating and drinking. Adultery was the subject of poems. Adultery was looked at as a beautiful option. And so we need to understand the message of holy living was new to that culture. And it was not easy for these young Christians to fight the temptations that were around them. Keep in mind that Paul was writing from Corinth, which was even worse than Thessalonica. Paul was constantly reminded of the immorality these Christians were facing. And remember, just a few months before this, many of those in the church at Thessalonica would have been living their lives according to the loose standards of the culture. This had been their entire way of life. These were new Christians, and it was a battle for them. It had to have been a source of great temptation. But here comes the lesson. Here comes the application. Despite all the pressure, despite all the immorality, including homosexuality, God's holy standard remains. And the apostolic message, the message of the first century church is do not cave into the pressure, the shifting standards, and the immorality of our day. Take a look at verses 4 and 5 that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Take the first part of verse 4, that each of you should know. This is a clear statement which lets us know that this applies to every single person within the body of Christ. The same standard fits every person within the church. And these verses teach us that purity is not just something that is going to happen all by itself. It's not something we can expect in our lives if we're not willing to put forth some effort. Every believer must learn how to bring his or her body under control. Every follower of Christ must live out the truth that our bodies must be set apart for serving the Lord. And either you're going to learn to control the desires of the flesh or they're going to control you. Romans 1 teaches us that to use the body for immorality brings dishonor to our bodies that God has created for us. But notice the last words of verse 4, and honor. It is a fact of life that when a man or woman abandons the moral high road, they lose respect. Paul taught, take that high road, live for Christ, retain your honor. And the picture given to us in verse 5 is of a person being overwhelmed and carried away by their cravings. The picture given is of men and women who allow their desires of the flesh to dominate them, which makes them a slave to sin. What Paul had in mind in verse 5 by saying, not in passion of lust, is identified for us by the second half of the verse, where he tells us, like the Gentiles, who do not know God. Because the lost do not know the one true God, they follow the pattern of Romans chapter 1. They suppress the knowledge of God found in creation, which leads them down the path to idolatry, which leads to immorality. The contrast in this passage is the holiness of God compared to the immorality running rampant in the first century world. Paul was reminding them of the importance for them as new converts to the faith of being careful not to fall back into the patterns of the lost. You know, we're not wild beasts. We can rise above the lusts of the flesh because of Jesus Christ. 
you can either choose to live for the flesh or live to honor Christ. Take a look at how Paul continues the argument against immorality in verse 6, that no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter, because the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also forewarned you and testified. Think of the flow of thought. Paul is still continuing the argument against immorality, but now he does so on the basis of the other person involved in the act with them. This brings us back to the idea of each believer possessing his own vessel in sanctification and honor. Thessalonica was a trade center, and the people there were quite familiar with the language of the trade business. Paul uses some of this same language when he tells them that no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother. To take advantage of means to overstep the moral boundary, and to defraud means here to cheat someone, to rob them. Sex is a two-way street, and the bottom line is that any immoral act, fornication, homosexuality, adultery, pedophilia, they all affect more than just one person. The sin robs someone else of the purity they should have in Christ and of the purity they should bring to their relationship with their own spouse. Notice the powerful statement at the end of verse 6, because the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also forewarned you and testified. Sin is serious, and there is a warning here. The Lord demands sexual purity from his people. The idea of being an avenger is the one who brings justice by judging those who have failed to live up to the holy standards of God. The Lord brings justice to those who have been wronged by another. And I think that the context points to the judgment seat of Christ. I think the main point is that Paul was referring to believers standing before a holy God at the judgment seat of Christ and giving account for how they lived. But the Lord is the avenger. He is the righteous judge. And there are times when the consequences of sin are immediate. Take a look at verses 7 and 8. For God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God, who has also given us his Holy Spirit. The reason God holds us to such a high standard is because he has called us to holiness. The God of the Bible has called us to holiness, to purity. And if you reject this holy standard, you're not just rejecting the teachings of men, but you are rejecting the very commandments of God. Paul tacks on the end of verse 8 that God is also the one who has given us his Holy Spirit. I think the idea behind this for bringing this up at this point in the text is to remind the church that it is God himself who has given each of us his spirit. It is the spirit of God who empowers us in the battle for holiness and for men and women in Christ to continue on that path of immorality. What's a direct insult against God? It is to sin against the spirit of God who empowers us to holiness. The indwelling presence of the spirit of God puts to an end the idea or belief that no man has the power to resist the lusts of this world. Now with verse 9, the text shifts somewhat, but the subject is still living a life which pleases the Lord. Verses 9 and 10 in your text. But concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. And indeed you do so toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia, but we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more. 
Notice the contrast. In fact, when you study the Word of God, that is one of the things you should look for. Contrasts help you understand the original intent of the text, which is what we're after. The word used for love, you know in English as the word Philadelphia, meaning brotherly love, family love. This group of believers excelled in their love for those within the family of God. These brothers and sisters in Christ had been taught by God of the importance of loving one another within the family of God. How were they taught by God? They were taught by the Spirit of God. It is a direct work of God. Romans 5, 5 teaches, Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who is given to us. The love of God that has been poured out to us is then to be poured out to others. And the evidence of this could be seen by the love they had shown to all those in Christ toward all the brethren in the Roman province of Macedonia. Thessalonica was the capital of this province, the location of Thessalonica and the political status of Thessalonica brought them the opportunities to demonstrate love to their brothers and sisters in Christ when they would travel to this city. Paul was not talking about love that just offers a pat on the back or a kind word. Paul was talking about love that is moved to action, love that meets the needs of others. The impression given is that this church took up every opportunity they could to demonstrate love towards those in Christ. And still, we read from Paul at the end of verse 10, but we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more. Paul urges them to abound in love, to overflow in love. There is always room for growth in love. The problem is we get complacent. It is easy to get into a routine and to get our focus on ourselves instead of on loving others in the body of Christ. Well, Jesus himself taught on this, didn't he? John 13, verses 34 and 35 A new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Love is what we should be known for. Our love should attract others to the faith. Take a look at our last two verses. That you also aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your own hands as we commanded you, that you may walk properly towards those who are outside and that you may lack nothing. Still tying back to verse 1, this is part of walking in Christ and living to please God. Here's what seems to have been going on. The new faith they had in Christ, the new hope they had in Christ, well, it had them pretty excited about the return of the Lord and their future with Christ. Paul actually had to settle them down and teach them to aspire to lead a quiet life. This church believed in the imminent return of Christ to the point that it would seem they took it a little too far and they failed to take care of the necessary functions of life. A very real part of the teaching in the rest of this letter to the church is the Apostle Paul letting them know that instead of letting their future hope in Christ distract them from the functions of everyday life, those in the church should let their enthusiasm for our future with Christ cause us to live out and fulfill our responsibilities in the here and now. It would seem that as time went on, the problems in this regard actually got a little bit worse. Listen to 2 Thessalonians, looking to chapter 3. Notice what the text teaches, 2 Thessalonians 3, starting in verse 6. But we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition which he received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow us, for we were not disorderly among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread free of charge, but worked with labor and toil night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. Not because we do not have authority, but to make ourselves an example of how you should follow us. For even when we were with you, we commanded you this, if anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. For we hear that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner, not working at all, but are busybodies. Now those who are such we command and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. Putting these two passages together, it would seem in the first letter that Timothy had come to Corinth with the report that this was starting to become a problem at Thessalonica. People were sitting idle, not working, taking advantage of Christian love and becoming busybodies. By the time of the second letter, the problem had grown. So notice in 1 Thessalonians how Paul tried to stop this problem before it grew. This first expression, to lead a quiet life, basically means to be at rest. It was wording that was used of silence after a speech, rest after work, peace after war. Here the meaning is to aspire to live a calm and peaceful life. And Paul gives to us in verse 11 two examples of what he meant by this. First was to mind your own business. In other words, focus on your own work at hand. Don't meddle in the affairs of other people. Love the brethren, but don't be a busybody. Don't meddle in other people's lives. If you're busy trying to run other people's lives, you're probably not doing so good running your own. Paul wanted them to tend to their own responsibilities in life, which is why Paul says next in verse 11, to work with your own hands. This does not mean that Christians should only take jobs that involve physical work with their hands. Quite a few people actually think this. The simple point is that Paul wanted them to get back to work because Paul knew the danger of idle men. Men without work, men without something to do, can become a great threat to the peace and well-being of the church. Put yourself back into the first century culture. Quite a few men did work physical labor, docking the ships or craftsmen working their trades. And Paul was reminding the church of the dignity of work, an honest day's pay for an honest day's labor. The Greeks considered manual labor as degrading. It was beneath them. It was something they preferred to have done for them by the slaves. There are a lot of prideful men and women in our day with that same attitude, isn't there? The Jews, they valued a strong work ethic. And this is one lesson that we should learn from them. Embrace work. Adam worked the garden before he fell into sin. And even in the kingdom of God, there will be work for believers to do. Work is a part of God's plan for us. Glorify God in your work. Paul gives two reasons in verse 12. First, that you may walk properly towards those who are outside. And secondly, that you may lack nothing. It does not put forth a strong testimony to the lost when Christians sit around idle. And Paul did not want the church of Christ filled with people who are always depending on others. Christian love can be taken advantage of, and Paul wanted those in the church to support themselves so that they can help others instead of always being on the receiving end of things. The bottom line is that those who continually impose upon the generosity of others are not living in love. 
in case you need a reminder about the dangers of immorality and that God is the avenger, I close with a true story. I'll call the people in question, Ted and Kathy, fictitious names, but the story is true. They were a couple whose 25-year marriage was a good one. Not the most ideal, but good. They had three grown children who loved them greatly. This couple was also blessed with sufficient financial security to allow them to dream about a retirement home, so they began looking for one. A widower, we'll call Ben, another fictitious name, was selling his place. Ted and Kathy liked it a lot, and they returned home to talk and to make their plans. Months passed, and in the fall of that year, Kathy told Ted that she wanted a divorce. Ted went numb. After all these years, he couldn't figure out why. How could she deceive him? How could she have been nursing such a scheme while they were looking at a retirement home? She said she hadn't been. Not for that long. Actually, this was a recent decision now that she had found another man. Who? Well, Kathy admitted it was Ben, the owner of the home, the house they were looking at, whom she had inadvertently ran into several weeks after they had discussed the sale which is another reminder about why Christians need to be careful about being alone with members of the opposite sex in private places. It works against you. Ben and Kathy had begun seeing each other privately, and since they were now, quote, in love, there was no turning back. Not even the kids who hated the idea could dissuade their mother. On the day she was to leave, Ted walked through the kitchen towards the garage, realizing she would be gone when he returned. He hesitated and said, Well, hon, I guess this is the last time. And his voice dissolved as he broke into sobs. She felt uneasy and hurriedly got her things together and drove north to meet Ben. Less than two weeks after she moved in with him, her new love, Ben, was seized with a heart attack. He lingered for a few hours, and then Ben died. Not every heart attack is God directly judging sin, but in this case, I think it might have been. And if God moved that swiftly every time, most folks would think twice before they started an affair. If God moved now like he did on the day with Ananias and Sapphira, I wonder if you'd have to build a morgue in the basement of every church. 1 Corinthians 6 teaches, The body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. When you play around with sexual sins, you're playing with fire. But you have been warned from the word of God that he is the avenger. Flee from immorality. Flee from gossip. Don't give in to the temptation to meddle in other people's business, but instead let us be known for committing our work to the Lord and abounding in the love of Christ for one another as we continue to live for our Savior. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time, and I pray that you will continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Return to the Word Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's Word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more about our ministry, please visit returntotheword.com. 
Return to the Word is a faith ministry. This means we freely distribute the teaching of the Word of God over the air and online. We do this without charge. If you feel led to support the ministry with a donation to help cover these costs, you may do so on our website, returntotheword.com, or by mailing a donation to Return to the Word, P.O. Box 879-259, Wasilla, Alaska, 99687. Thanks for listening, and we pray that the Word of God will be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Join us next time for another edition of Return to the Word 